Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, LA Opera Connect's Vice President Tevin Fowler-Chapman sits down with internationally acclaimed tenor and LA Opera Artist-in-Residence Russell Thomas to discuss storytelling in opera and what he hopes to impart to the next generation of artists. Hear Russell Thomas in recital at the Colburn on Saturday, February 25th. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. Hello and welcome to Behind the Curtain. My name is Tim Valo Chapman. I'm the Vice President for LA Opera Connects. And today I have with me LA Opera's Artist-in-Residence, Mr. Russell Thomas. Russell, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. The first question I just, you know, I have to ask everyone, the opera that has touched you the most or that has been the most memorable for you, whether you've performed it or just seen it. Oh, two operas. Carmen, uh, when I was a kid, was the first opera I saw live. So that had a huge impact on me. And then Turandot. Turandot, which I've not performed yet. I'm actually learning the role of Kalaf right now. But Turandot was one of those operas that I was obsessed with as a teenager. Really? I would listen to it all the time. I would follow along in the score. <laughs> uh, so that's why a month ago I thought I knew it. I realized I don't know, <laughs> as, I don't know it as well as I thought I did. Um, yeah, those two operas were, were very meaningful for me for different reasons. Yeah. Within Turandot, there's that, that childhood connection. Like, What grabbed you about that opera when you were uh, younger? That kind of stayed with you. I don't, I don't know what, what grabbed me about it. Uh, I think, for one, it was just the sheer, you know, scale of it and the singing in it. You know, Puccini at its, his most sort of dramatic, uh, that riddle scene in Act Two, artists like Gwyneth Jones, and that was huge for me. And hearing those voices and seeing that drama just had a huge impact. The first opera I got really connected to was uh, Prince Igor through Marching Band, and no one ever performs it. And as a result, it's like I have this deep connection to that opera and I'm always like waiting for someone to perform it, which will never happen. Gotta go but to Russia. Is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but is that kind of like a, you grew up very attached to certain uh, roles and um, operas in, you know, childhood or going uh, into like early adulthood that just saying, these are the ones that I really want to perform, that yes. I really want to be a part of. Definitely. Those those two operas, uh, I think I, I waited so long to sing Don Jose and Carmen because I had such a respect for the piece. It meant so much to me that I didn't want to mess it up. <laughs> and it's the same with Turandot. I, I held back with saying yes to a, a production of it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And now it's time. And now I'm sort of like, you know, it's kind of, I'm nervous because again, that that fascination with it when I was a kid. Yeah. And will someone have that fascination about my singing? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That's those are the kind of things I think about with the, with works like that. I'm sure they will. I I love your singing. Uh you. I mean the other side too is how do you know when you're personally are ready for those roles that you've dreamed for? Uh, is it just a thing where you take a leap or Yes, you don't know if you can do it until you actually do it. Mm -hmm. So um that's that's a. Uh, I mean, you can do it as much as you want in a practice room and with your teacher or with a coach, but until you're actually put in a situation and the pressure's on, you don't really know if you can do it until you actually have to. Uh, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see in a, in a month and a half if I could actually sing it. For me, I always think about 
one, if someone's asking me to do it, there must be some validity to it. I'm not one of these people that think that imposter syndrome is definitely not a thing for me. Yeah. If someone asks me to do it, I must be qualified in their eyes to do it. Yeah. So I then take time and like go through a role and listen and watch, follow along with the score and see the demands of it. And if I can, one, sing every note, that's important. <laughs> if uh, <laughs> Then I ask singers who've had experience singing it, what are the pitfalls or where are the, the difficult parts? And then I try to sing that those parts which a lot of, with a lot of difficulty. And if those work out for me, then I say yes. And you have you also have a lot of Verity in this season. Yes, uh, we have we have Ernaniant, the Opera of Chicago, Don Carlo with the Met, your Signotello here, Verdi and Requiem, Forza and Forza in Paris, and Verdi yeah. Requiem just last week. Yeah, is there a, a deep connection for you know Verdi operas for you as well? Similar to Turner? not not in not in a sense of uh, childhood. Um, it was more when I started singing and learning how to sing well. Um, that I felt like my voice fit that repertoire very mm-hmm. well. I could handle the demands of the parts. Again, it requires you to be able to do all the different things with your voice, and I could do them. Again, not every night is it successful, but there's nothing in a Verdi opera that I can't do and find it in my voice to do it. So it's become sort of a specialty of mine, Verdi and Mozart, you yeah. know, those, those two things. It's yeah. like they just, you know, going back to the whole not having imposter syndrome piece yeah. part of it is like like one you're going to try to do it if other people trust in you yes. then it's like you can definitely do it but also these are roles in which you feel very comfortable with regardless of the opera yes just the way they've written that's yeah. fantastic just in general you know going back to the having that connection as a child what about opera what's the key piece that makes you fall in love with the art form over and over again and has it changed also from when you first learned about opera to now? It's changed a lot because yeah. now my livelihood depends on it. <laughs> when how I pay my bills is involved, <laughs> there is a, a different set of priorities or pressure. The first thing is singing, you know, and if the singing is not there, there has to be something happening on stage that is compelling for me. I don't actually sit in a lot of audiences because I'm, I find... These days, no matter how much of a fan of opera I am, I only think of it from an analytical point of view. Like yeah. I'm analyzing why did that person make that decision? Why that choice from the director? Why this on stage? Yeah. Again, I'm always asking questions. I'm not just there enjoying what's happening. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's that that culmination of all aspects of the arts. You know, there's the theater, there's the the literature, there's music, there's the visual art. When all of those things come together to make compelling storytelling, you can't beat it. There's nothing else like it. You know, there's absolutely nothing else like it. I mean, for me, a musician, instrumentalist, percussionist coming up, a lot of my ties to opera were solely just the musical elements. Having all of it come together, it's really the most impactful part for me. And I can, what things in opera do you feel are a bit unexplored by our field, by artists, et cetera? Hmm. I think native stories. Mm-hmm. They're they're not. I mean, in Canada, there are some composers that are doing very good work with telling those stories and librettists that are telling those stories. But here in America, we aren't so much. That is an unexplored area. Uh, maybe it's touchy to try to do it, and who's going to perform it and sing these roles. But I think that's an unexplored area in storytelling. Also, 
heroes of a time past when it comes to black and Latino persons, you know, the heroes of the time. We always hear about the traumatic experiences of underrepresented communities, but we don't often hear about those heroic moments or those heroic persons. I think having those stories told is important. I think people are trying to change that, but even in that they're they're focusing a bit more on the on the drama or trauma mm-hmm. than they are on the heroicism or the romanticism of these characters. Yeah, the, or the black boy joy, black yes. girl magic. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and not just for black stories. I, like I said, yeah. for native stories, for Latino stories, oftentimes we don't get the joy. Right. We get you know the triumph. The, yes, we don't get the triumph. We get the the traumatic aspects. I understand that it makes good theater sometimes, but I think. Comedies do too, you know. <laughs> Let's laugh a little bit. I remember reading this story about 10 years ago about this uh, ship captain Smalls during the Civil War mm-hmm. who was a pirate and would go and take the other ships. And this is how he helped from a naval point of view, you know, the North win a war. And I was like, why has no one written an opera about this guy? And every composer I, I meet, I said, you, somebody has to write this opera. I want to sing this opera. But we don't get those characters. I, I'd like to see stuff like that happen. So composers, librettists, if you're listening, <laughs> this is just a hint, please. Yeah. The other thing that you have also been focusing on, especially as an artist in residence, there's the part where we want to, you know, it's great to see more diverse stories uh, within different people on stage, but also advancing the careers and building pipelines for students who want to aspire to be where you are. Yeah. Could you talk more about what inspired you to bring that program together here at LA Opera? Well, all of the programs uh, from the high school YADA program to the HBCU program was because I was very lucky as a kid to have people who supported me, not in my family, but mm-hmm. I, was, I was very lucky to have people who, when I said I liked opera, my family wasn't going to take me to the opera. <laughs> I knew that was not going to happen. <laughs> so there were other people, a community of people that supported that. I got to go to dress rehearsals and I got to do all those things in high school. I had a community of people that helped me see my dream and know that it was possible. And I think that that doesn't really exist for a lot of people. And I want to try to find a way to develop that. Young singers in, from HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, tend to be overlooked because their institutions don't really focus on all the nitty gritty that it takes to become a professional singer or musician, uh, unless you play it in the band or something, because mm-hmm. bands are important in, in HBCU culture. Singing is important in HBCU culture as well, but not so much in the classical style. The yeah. choral tradition is huge. Gospel choir, choral tradition is huge in, in black colleges, but they don't focus on learning languages. They don't focus on certain musical skills that one needs to succeed. And I felt that if we could, even if it's virtually, have the great staff at LA Opera and people from around the world giving input and feeding into these kids and pouring into them that they could see what it takes to get to the next level Mm -hmm. and either say, this isn't for me, Uh, I don't have that, or I don't know if I can do that, or I see what I need to work on and this is what I need to do to get there. Mm -hmm. And that's why the other half of that HBCU program is learning about other jobs in 
the arts or mm-hmm. in nonprofit is there's the development, there's the education department, there are all these other jobs. So if you don't make it on the stage, there's a role for you backstage. There's a role for you in the administration. And the only way for this art form to survive, I say it again and again and again, is for diverse stories uh, and diverse people to be behind the scenes and in the audience. And unfortunately, there's not enough behind the scenes, so mm-hmm. you don't get enough in the audience. Unless, again, you're telling a story like a Porgy and Bess, like a Fire Shot of My right. Bones. If you're telling a story like that, and there's nothing wrong with those stories, but I think that the net should be cast wider, mm-hmm. you know? And then for the high school program, I think that is along the same lines. I was lucky enough that somebody heard me sing very young and said, I think you could be an opera singer. And then Opera Theater St. Louis has a, a wonderful program that does the exact same thing, but it, it's like 30 days or just a short time in yeah. like the summer or something along those lines. And wouldn't it be great if we can do this over 30 weeks mm-hmm. and not just 30 days crunched in or 45 days crunched in? And so we developed something where it's a weekly experience, you know, twice a week. And the singers, so far, we have a lot of kids who are eager and are and love singing. And the thing is, if they don't become a singer one day, they may become a lawyer, doctor, <laughs> a <laughs> surgeon in one case, and one one's, and we will need those people to help us in this art form. That's so, true. <laughs> so you have to be forward thinking uh, on all levels, and that's what I was always thinking about, even younger when I first got in, involved in the business. Mm-hmm. How can the decisions I make as an artist on stage and off stage impact the business for the long haul? And uh, I think these programs do that. Wonderful. And I mean, you also teach at IU, which is my, uh, not my alma mater, but grad school alma mater <laughs> kind of counts. You know, within all of these experiences, you're, you know, you're a professor at a, in a university, a very high level program, mm-hmm. the administration kind of developing the HBCU program, the uh, programming of the uh, Russell Thomas Youth Young Artist Training Academy, you know, coming up through your young artist's programs through your you know through your formal training Mm -hmm. were there uh, were there kind of key things where it's like this is really you know from my own experience this is what I want to uh, either embody or kind of change for the next class of artists one is I always try to practice a level of respect for my students and other artists no matter where they are in their development that was not necessarily my story when I was coming through the business and in the young artist level, trying to not coddle them. Uh, And it's really hard today not to do that because everything is, you know, hypersensitive. And I don't blame people for being hypersensitive. And I don't, I understand there are a lot of factors there that cause this, but uh, it's a hard business and life is generally ugly and, and, and hard. It's generally hard. Yes. So uh, I think, it's my job as mentor, as teacher, as an artist to say, this is very difficult. Not that you can't feel these things and not that these mm-hmm. things are not real, but you have to find a way to either use it to make you a better artist mm-hmm. or move on. It doesn't work any other way. Life is, you know, we just don't have the time. But also, like I said, from a sense of respect and love, because I did not have that. I did have people that were very tough on me, mm-hmm. and I appreciated those people. One administrator told me when I was about to, you know, break out and start doing solo work that, you know, I really love your voice. 
I love everything it is that you do. I just don't like you. <laughs> and so, oh my God. and you know what? People are often shocked by that. People mm-hmm. are often shocked by that. But I said, thank you to that person. And it really moved something in me because at least she was honest. At least I didn't go around wondering, I wonder if this woman likes me, if she likes my talent. She said it. I love your talent. I just don't like you. And there's something about her honesty that I appreciate. I didn't think it had to be done in such an ugly way. And it, and when I and when I heard it, when I heard it in that moment, it initially shocked me. And then I was like, thanks. At least now I know. A, a lot of times with with singers, we do an audition, we don't get feedback. We do a performance. Everybody tells you it's great, and then they go in meetings and say it sucked. You know. But what if they just said, you know, you need to really work on this, 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 and this. That would be more constructive. That would be more helpful than telling you to your face that you're great and then going in a meeting and saying, oh, that was really horrible. You know, what are we going to do for the next performances? But again, it's the nature of this historically and me being in this business now since I was, I made first my debut when I was 21 and now I'm 46. So in all those years, this has been sort of consistent. People tell you great things to your face, and then they tell you a bunch of horrible things behind your back. Or sometimes they tell you horrible things to your face, uh, and it's not to help. It's to deflate and defeat. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you can find a way to balance those things. It's like, just just mind the tone a little bit. A little bit. bit. A little bit. Please, please. A little bit. And what we do is so sensitive. I mean... I don't, not to disparage anybody that plays an instrument, but our instruments is something that's within our being, in our body. If we are sick, if we're, if we have a breakup, if it's too cold outside or too hot outside or whatever the case is, our instruments are affected. It's from within us. We can't put our instrument down and just walk away from it. There's something so powerful about an artist that can put down a paintbrush or put down a pen or a computer or whatever or whatever that instrument is, and say, I don't want to do this right now. I can't deal with this right now. I don't have that luxury. (laughs) I don't have that luxury because my voice is in everything I do. A kind tone is important, but I think not to coddle because that's not going to help anybody. Absolutely. Adding to the number of things that kind of goes into being Russell Thomas (laughs) and being an artist, uh, there's the the performance part. There's the, you know, these programs for uh, that are advancing the next generation of artists. And there's also kind of the the more creative side of or, or the other creative side, really, of, you know, developing programs like recitals, like the one that uh, you'll be performing at Colburn in February. What brought the different repertoire for that recital together for you? I wanted to do a recital that was not just me and a piano. I wanted to do some chamber music. And, you know, I have some things that I do all the time. There's the Vaughn Williams on one edge. And I was like, oh, I can just do the stuff I already know and put together a great program. But there wasn't enough rep for me. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if there are anything by Black composers that I can do on this recital. And I started searching for a repertoire, searching for a repertoire. I even went to Chicago because Jesse Montgomery had curated a, a performance of vocal chamber music. And I went and I listened to that. And I was like, there's just not enough repertoire. Even then in that concert, that rep was for women and for one bass baritone singing his own rep. I thought there's just not enough repertoire. So I guess we have to create some. And so I started with Adolphus Hillstork, who wrote these four romantic songs on text by uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And I emailed 
Professor Hellstark out of the blue and said, hey, would you want to make a small chamber uh, ensemble arrangement of the four romantic songs? And he's like, I don't know. I don't have a lot of time and I'm over 80. I don't know. I don't know. But he did it and he turned in, you know, what I think is a really beautiful piece of music, which was already a, a, a fantastic piece of music. And so I started then just expanding. But it was mainly because the vocal chamber music repertoire was not there for the by black composers. Mm-hmm. Then it came to like, okay, then what, if I'm going to commission people, then what stories are we going to tell? And I thought about stories uh, celebrating my gayness, my blackness, you know, all of that. And so I started asking people to write stuff. And I think what we've come up with is great. I hope people love it as much as I do. But there, there's still, I couldn't commission everything. So one of the big pieces, cycles, is H. Leslie Adams' Night Songs, which already existed in a chamber orchestra version. Right. But we couldn't put too many instruments on stage, so they would rearrange it for string quartet and piano. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about it. It's a, it's a classic cycle that's been done by all the great singers, especially Black singers, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it as well, just for the identifying and kind of celebrating the the same things we were talking about earlier in regards to opera, which is the, you know, the non-super traumatic parts of yeah. of your blackness, but also of other parts of you, of yes. uh, your sexual identity, etc. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the recital program. I think uh, it's going to be really, a really impactful one for Los Angeles. I hope so. I, as I said, I... I and, and there is not a downtrodden or sad song in the entire thing. <laughs> that, it, that is very important to me, that there was not any sadness. It was romantic. It's sensual. It's sometimes very sexual language, but it's not sad. And it's not based in my trauma or anyone's trauma. I mean, it may be. Somebody may find the romanticism of it traumatic. It may remind them of a love lost. Uh, that's fine. But we're not celebrating the lost love. We're celebrating the moments right. when it was love. And encouraging more triumph, right? Yes. yes. Well, we're looking forward to your recital at the Colburn School on February 25th at 8 p.m. Thank you so much, Russell. Thank you. Hear Russell Thomas in recital at the Colburn on Saturday, February 25th. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.